4: I'm Peter Jukes.
5: I'm Devi Amir.
4: And we'll be exploring new revelations from the book by Alistair and me and more of the story which no one thought could be told.
2: I'm sure I asked Mum, you know, was there a lot of blood? It was probably going through that kind of age. I remember asking him, I don't know if it was a few weeks before or a long time, we were out somewhere and I asked him, you know, Daddy, when are you going to die? And that's still, you know, I remember asking him that question in a wood I used to go out with him, you know, he'd take us out, and we were somewhere with lots of wood. I think he was buying stuff to, you know, his tongue, probably tongue-grooving, everything, in the in the house at that time, it was in fashion. And I remember asking him that question, you know, when are you going to die? But sometime before, I mean, I don't know how long, how early your memories start, but it wasn't that long before, and he said, you know, not for a very long time. I can always remember that he said that. But I remember, you know, having that conversation with him, and it's quite strange that I've held on to that memory of because I don't have lots of memories of him. You know, at six, I guess you don't remember so much, do you?
4: That was Sarah Morgan, talking for the first time in public about her and her brother Daniel's reaction to the news of their father's death. We'll hear more from her throughout this new series, but let it not be forgotten. Behind the mystery of this true crime, behind the conspiracy to murder and cover-up, is a real personal tragedy and a family's loss.
5: Untold. The Daniel Morgan Murder.
4: Welcome to the second episode of the second season of The Daniel Morgan Murder.
5: In the last episode, we looked at the perfect murder almost... ...and all the suspicions surrounding the night before the murder. The strange faces at the window, the missing documents Daniel was reportedly carrying... ...and was it a dry run? And if it wasn't for Alistair Morgan showing up and asking questions... Would it have all gone to plan?
4: This episode we'll look at the first murder investigation, Morgan One, and the shadow boxing between Alistair Morgan, suspicious of John Reese, Rhys, and Reese's best friend, Sid Fillery, who was also on the murder squad.
5: Meanwhile, we've had a fantastic response and lots of questions coming in. Um, so do keep those coming. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible. Let me ask you, Peter, one of the questions was why didn't the killers remove the document? Why did they leave it for the squad to remove?
4: Well, my answer to that would be why take the files if you're just the hitman? You know, the cleanup people, if you like, the Mr Fix-It, like Pulp Fiction, would be in a better position if the police were in control. I, The scene would be controlled, no random members of the public wandering by. Police officers also would know if it's a story about police corruption, Daniel was selling, which files were relevant, which the hitmen wouldn't. And also gotta remember that a bent detective, whether a private detective or a police detective, would be much more effective at wiping down the car and explaining why their prints were actually found there because they were part of the crime team.
5: Oh, so if the police were kind of like the cleanup team, the job of the hitmen was not only to kill Daniel but maybe to make it look like a mugging, you know, by taking the watch.
4: Yeah, well, they failed to make it look like a mugging because they also didn't know about the £1,000 in his jacket pocket. The other thing also, if they're preparing the scene, maybe they have to leave the car keys available for the squad to check the car. So the car keys, as you know, were found with a bag of crisps on the ground, right?
5: Yeah, tastelessly, Why the uh, Vians refer to it as the Golden Wonder Murder?
4: One of the names was the Golden Wonder Murder, yes. One of the reasons for that strangely torn pocket might be then that they had to get the car keys out. And obviously with a lifeless body prone on the ground, it's not easy to do that. So then everything's ready for the police.
5: So it's a case of leave it to the professionals because they'll probably do a much better job.
4: Well, that's the thing here, and it was mentioned later in 1997 when they started re-examining southern investigations in that Operation Nigeria, that there's nothing better, nothing more effective than a corrupt police officer or corrupt private detective, because they know how to clean things up brilliantly. They know all the procedures, they know the rules of evidence, and they can destroy evidence much more effectively than a random criminal or member of the public.
5: So, at the end of last episode, we had just left the crime scene being sealed. Badly. Well, let's begin by following the murder investigations team and tracking their first actions. Have a listen to this extract from Untold, The Daniel Morgan Murder Exposed, read by Alistair Morgan.
0: The first outsider informed of the murder was Jonathan Rees, the last person known to have seen Daniel alive at that point. The murder squad's second in command, Detective Inspector Alan Jones, arrived with Detective Constable Kinley Davis at Reese's home on Cresswell Road in South Norwood, shortly after midnight. DC Davis had a gut feeling that Reese was expecting them. At the door, they asked Reese if he knew Daniel Morgan and were ushered into the living room where they informed Reese of Daniel's death. Davis recalled that Reese's wife, Sharon, didn't look up from the TV. Reese was wearing a long-sleeved blue striped shirt, grey trousers, black socks and no shoes and confirmed that these were the clothes he was wearing at the pub. D.I. Jones asked him to come to the police station with his clothes but Reese protested, Who do you think I am? The mad Axeman of Catford?
5: I mean, is that normal that they would go and tell... A business partner first, before a family member.
0: But it
4: is a bit unusual. Reese was his business partner, but you would have thought they'd go see a member of the family first, the next of kin. This is now midnight, two and a half hours after the most probable murder. I don't know, maybe they had a tip-off, Reese was the last person to see him alive, but it is a bit strange to me.
5: Yeah, because Kinley Davies said that they seemed to be expecting them. So maybe they had a tip-off about that. And there were other tip-offs.
4: Well, yes, the other tip-off is very strange to me, is he already mentions the axe. Who do you think I am? The mad axeman of Capford? Now, how would he know what the murder weapon
5: was? Yeah, how would he know? Unless he'd been told.
4: I mean, according to the police officers, and they questioned a lot about this, they hadn't told him. So how would he know? And then, of course, we'll get to this a bit later, all the different accounts he gives the next morning to Alister and other witnesses about a different kind of way he was killed. So that is really weird and a bit, you know, incriminating, I'd say, a bit suspicious.
5: So the only way Reese would have known about the axe is if he'd seen it before, he'd had something to do with it or someone had told him about it, which are all a bit incriminating. And
4: given these incriminating remarks, it's even more extraordinary the way they treat Reese when he's taken to the police station. Apparently, we found out he sort of talked for an hour and a half to the chief murder investigator about his knowledge of police officers and judges. And then, to check him for any forensics, they made a visual inspection of his clothes, which is, as we all know, not sufficient if you're looking for tiny spatters of blood or, or fibres that could tie you to a crime scene. And then after that, even more bizarre, it's Jonathan Rees who is taken to inform The next of kin i.e daniel's wife iris of his murder
5: so do you think that there is a possibility that he might have asked to go along
4: well that would make sense you know because in that way he can control the flow of information
5: so he's already manipulating the scene as it were
4: well let's listen to
0: the extract and see around 2 a.m Detective Superintendent Campbell asked Reese to accompany two police officers to inform Daniel's next of kin, his wife Iris. In an affidavit, Reese claimed he heard Iris Morgan exclaim on hearing the news, I knew they were going to hurt him, but I never thought they'd go this far. But the two officers present, P.C. Lawrence Hart and D.C. Noel Cosgrave, had a completely different recollection, an expression of Total shock and bewilderment. Why would anyone do such a thing?
5: Why would Reese put words in Iris's mouth?
4: And look at the words, how different they are.
5: What Iris actually said was, how could anyone do that? But Reese reported back that she said, I knew they were after him. So he's implying that she might have had something to do with the murder. Or, at the very least, there were other people that were after him.
4: Well, actually, she had no idea of motive. So, Reese inserts a motive here. Maybe a jealous wife who heard or knew her husband was going to be beaten up and it went too far. That's the implication. And what is this?
5: Well, it's another red herring, isn't it?
4: In that thickly populated pond of red herrings.
5: Well, it does make sense that he wanted to go along, if that was their plan, because he could then plant these quite easily.
4: Exactly, he's embedded, isn't he? Right from the beginning in the police investigation, even though, quite soon, he's a prime suspect.
5: And it's working quite well, isn't it? You know, they seem to have done the perfect murder. Now this is going towards a perfect cover-up.
4: Distractions, diversions, displacements. This is what's going on. And it continues the next morning, because we know from the night of the murder that Reese knew the murder weapon was an ax. Yet what's he telling the office staff? What's he telling Alistair Morgan the morning
0: afterwards?
5: Well, let's have a listen to that extract from series one of that conversation between Alistair and Reese.
0: He said Daniel had gone out to the car park and he'd been mugged, fatally mugged, in the car park. Mugged,
4: implying a robbery?
0: Yeah. And I said to him... What did, they, what did they do to him, John? What, what did they do it with? How did, they, how did they kill him? And then he sort of hesitated, and he said, I think he was bludgeoned to death.
4: Which implies blunt trauma.
0: Yeah. Good, yeah, yeah. And anyway, I remember I said, right, I'm coming up to London now, John. And I, I, I remember I wanted to see him. Battered is actually the
4: word, as Alistair now recalls, and is the word in the book.
5: So listening to that... There was definitely no mention of an axe.
4: No, not at that point, and it's all about the mugging.
5: I mean, this is just strange, though, isn't it? Why race is... He's a successful private investigator. His partner, his business partner at the very least, has just murdered. He doesn't seem to be going around trying to find out who done it.
4: Well, you could say in Extremis he's so shocked and confused he's just looking for suspects anywhere. That's a possibility, but a narrow one. Let's just think about what was happening at the police investigation at the time.
5: Yes, because that Alistair and Reese conversation was around nine o'clock that morning. So let's continue with what the murder investigations team were doing.
4: Well, the key action was taking a statement from Jonathan Reese, And for some bizarre reason, since he was known to be a friend of Reese's, Sid Fillory was tasked with that job. Tasked from above, let's say, again talking about incompetence or organisation. He goes down to the police station, they begin to take the statement and then they have a call from the mortuary. Fillory says they get a call from the mortuary and decide to incorporate the identification of the body in Reese's statement. But actually the body isn't ready. They get there too early and they go down the pub and have a few more drinks, beer and sandwiches, and then come back and Reese says he sees the axe in the body when it's impossible and then goes back finish his first ever statement about the events around Daniel's murder.
5: Having just been to the pub, so unprofessional. <laughs> well, if this was, for example, the perfect cover-up, Fillory taking Reese's statement and Reese going along to view the body is quite effective.
4: But, as we'll see, there was another hole in their story which would cause them a big problem later on.
5: Let's take a quick pause there, back in a moment.
6: Hold up, what was that?
5: So we're back with Fillory taking Reese's statement, which is extraordinary in itself, them being friends. But what's in that statement?
4: Well, more importantly, Dee, what's not in that statement? One is the Belmont car auction robbery. That isn't mentioned at all.
5: Why would he not want to mention Belmont?
4: Well, Fillory set up that job. Secondly, is also absent from the account of the meeting at the Golden Lion the night before the murder, when we know he attended.
5: So it does seem that Fillory is trying to airbrush himself out of any association, professional association with Reese,
4: Professional one, at least, yeah. But that could be a sin of omission, embarrassment, kind of unforgivable. I mean, it was really criticised, this terse and inadequate statement, is what Hampshire said. But there's a third thing that has changed which is really... Really, quite incriminating, and will cause problems ahead. And that is the time of the meeting. So, in reese's first statement, taken the day after the murder, he says he met Daniel in the Golden Lamb pub on the Monday at seven thirty.
5: But we know they met at nine p.m.
4: Yeah. So why would you change that time, especially since Billery would have known it's untrue because he was there.
5: So why is Fillory allowing Reese to make this false statement? Which he knows to be false, because like you said, he was there.
4: Well, that's the problem. But there's only one reason to me why they deliberately changed that. Because they didn't want it to be the same time as the murder. So they're saying they met at 7.30, Monday, when they actually met at 9, and at 9 o'clock on the Tuesday, Daniel is killed.
5: Oh, so they didn't want to be seen at the same time in the pub the night before, because it would look like a dry run.
4: Yeah. It's one of the only reasons they take that risk of changing something which would soon be flagged up as a complete anomaly.
5: So on day one of the perfect cover-up, it's on track and going quite well.
4: Yep, but on day two, it hits another bump in the road. Alistair Morgan turns up. He's got all these suspicions about Reese. has managed to kind of entrap Reese in all those red herrings about affairs. And so, finally, he gets to see Sid Fillory in the company of D.I. Allen Jones, the second in command of the murder squad.
5: Well, let's have a listen to Alistair's first interview with Fillory from series one.
0: I showed up in the afternoon. I was shown into this little interview room. It was a rather spartan, unwelcoming little place with sort of bars on the window and a and a kind of big steel ashtray on the floor. So I came in and sat with Fillory. And I then went over everything that had gone through my mind, everything that I'd seen, all my conversations with Reese, how he'd behaved. And I told them uh, my suspicions about Belmont. Mm. And then when I raised the Belmont thing, he said, what robbery was that then? It was quite obvious that I was very, very suspicious of Reese. We're pursuing a number of lines of inquiry at the moment. he said, we can't go rushing down what could be a blind alley simply on your gut feeling.
5: So again, to Alistair, Fillory is trying to deny any connections to do with Belmont.
4: And this is ridiculous, of course, because we know that Fillory set up the job and the Thursday before Daniel was murdered... There's evidence he was in the high court with Reese and one of the Vian brothers when they had that judgment and they had to lodge £10,000 with the court. So, of course, he knew about it.
5: But this is the important thing. Because of the non-mention of Belmont in the interview, somebody was paying attention.
4: Well, exactly, because D.I. Jones, according to Alistair, was there. And according to Alistair in our book... He noticed that Jones looked very concerned or disturbed by what Fillory said about what's this robbery then and left the room. And it's this moment, I think, where the inquiry begins to turn
0: its attention to Fillery.
5: Well, let's follow Fillery now and see what he does next.
0: Two days after the murder, Sid Fillery was asked to leave the incident room and spend the next three days at Southern Investigations, gathering gossip and intelligence. All I want you to do is hang around the office for the next four days," Detective Superintendent Campbell told him on Thursday, the 12th of March, 1987. Extraordinarily, this allowed Fillory to make another clear-out of Southern Investigation's files. For a second time, on this occasion with DC Mickey Crofts, the Catford detective removed correspondence and files from the Thornton Heath office, which were deposited in the boot of his car. Instead of logging them in with the murder squad as exhibits, Fillery went straight to the Prince of Wales public house in Thornton Heath for another rendezvous with Jonathan Rees. There, DC Crofts saw them joined by a third police officer, PC Derek Haslam, who would later play a more significant role in this story. That second tranche of files was never seen again. Fillery's driver, PC Richard Zdreevsky, would later claim he helped clear out his sergeant's desk of a load of buff-coloured files marked CR and some police microfiches. He burnt most of them.
5: So we're back to the files again. I know you'll like this because you're obsessed with files. But um, these are ones are marked CR, so it doesn't sound like Belmont files to me.
4: No, no, CR sounds like criminal records or confidential records and microfiches. Well, that's Government or police.
5: So, anything to do with maybe the beige files that he was carrying?
4: Yes, that he had under his arm. Daniel is he heading towards the Golden Lion that fateful night. It could be, and certainly indicates to me, you know, the bigger conspiracy than Belmont.
5: So, what was Fillery doing? You know, he's still on the force. What's he doing these two days after the murder?
4: Yeah, he's still on the squad, but won't be for much longer. Uh, he's basically quite lazy, apart from, you know, working with Reese and that dodgy statement. Uh, He does very few actions, as the police call it, compared to the hundreds of that inquiry. He does a handful. Most of it he delegates to other people. But after this interview, he does two rather important actions.
5: So he does very few, but the ones that he does do are important. What does he do?
4: Well, he firstly puts in a note to the murder inquiry, some quite spurious theory about two sisters in a love rivalry over Daniel.
5: Back to the jealousy theme again.
4: Another red herring, another of our favourite red herrings. Uh, more importantly, according to Alistair's sister, Jane, he's the one who gets Alistair
5: out of town. Well, let's revisit that conversation, actually, with Jane from series one.
2: I've just had a call, he said, from Sergeant Sid Fillery at the Murder Squad incident room, and um, he said he's a great friend of Daniel's, great friend of Daniel's, and he, he's going to shift heaven and high earth to catch Danny's killers. But he said we, there's a problem he asked if you could, if the family, could try and get Alistair out of London because he's muddying the waters and hindering the investigation. And I thought, oh, my God, now on top of Danny being dead, now Alistair is... His theory that Jonathan Rees is behind Daniel's mm. killing is way off beam...
4: And causing and problems. And causing
2: problems. And I was thinking, oh no, we don't need this on top of that. And we'll have to try and get Alice because you do, you do, you believe the police. I did. Thought yes. I'd never heard of Sid Fillory. and I I did remember thinking, well, if he's such a great friend of Daniel's, how come Daniel has never spoken of his great friend Sergeant Sid Fillory? But nevertheless, well, you trust the police. You could trust you. the police.
5: So this to me is the beginning of the demise of Fillory.
4: Well, I agree, because, look, he's showing his hand, isn't he? Getting Alistair out of town. And you're not alone to think that. We've now discovered that during this phase in the murder inquiry, they brought Reese back in for another examination, not with Fillory, not with his mate. And guess what happened at the end of that? After this interview, Reese was asked to bring his car for more forensics, but we have evidence he'd washed his car. As he leaves the interview, they're watching from the police station as he goes to his car and rings someone on the car phone. And they immediately ring Fillory's number and find it's engaged.
5: It's a nice little clever little uh, sting.
4: It is, but it indicates they're suspicious of Fillory now, so we're heading
0: towards those arrests.
5: Well, let's see where their suspicions lead.
0: On the 23rd of March, nearly two weeks after the murder... The office manager Peter Newby was interviewed about the legal background to the Belmont car auctions dispute and the £10,000 Southern investigation was ordered to lodge with the court in the week before Daniel Morgan's murder. Employees at the car auction warehouse gave more details of the Belmont security job how the three serving police officers, Fillory, Purvis, and Foley, had been moonlighting as part of a security team that included Reese and his brothers-in-law, Gary and Glenn Vian. DC Duncan Hanrahan was questioned about his investigation into the robbery of 18,000 pounds from Reese outside his home. The Morgan Murder Squad then discovered the legal letters sent by Belmont Car Auction solicitors to the three police officers, suggesting they should give evidence in their legal suit against Reese. Two days later, detectives from the murder squad took a second statement from Peter Newby, in which he recalled Fillery had attended the offices of Southern Investigations on the morning after the murder. He said Fillery had removed several files, including one about Belmont car auctions. By now, with three Metropolitan Police officers under investigation, including a very senior detective on his own murder squad, Douglas Campbell was feeling the strain. He consulted with senior officers, including commanders Alan Fry and Ken Merton, and wondered if the murder investigation now needed to be taken over by an outside force. Three weeks after Daniel Morgan was axed to death, on the 2nd of April, 1987, The murder team sought warrants at Greenwich Magistrates Court to arrest the six key figures thought to be involved in the Belmont robbery. But Detective Superintendent Campbell was right to be worried that his murder team could not cope with an investigation that also involved Metropolitan police officers.
5: So it was Alistair who unintentionally put Fillory in the frame?
4: Yeah, I believe so. And here's the amazing thing. Already in those first two days, Alistair was exposing police corruption and turning the attention of Morgan One, the first murder investigation, towards that subject. But look, here's the tragic twist something that the murder investigators themselves largely were probably unaware of, and that's the role of a corrupt press.
5: So the role of the press is also this early on?
4: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most amazing discoveries, I suppose, of this section of the book. And this is around the arrests of Reese and Fillory. Now, I think we mentioned in the previous season about this character, John Ross, a tipster to the press, friend of Alex Marinchak at News of the World. Do you remember him?
5: Yes, I remember. And Marinchak, of course, was the crime reporter and then editor of News of the World. And John Ross was the ex-policeman who was invited into the incident room being a friend of Fillory's.
4: Yeah, we've discovered he's a friend of Fillory's, but more important, he's completely wrong for a non-policeman to be there. He was a policeman, left under a bit of a shadow, has a slightly chequered wine bar with bank robbers attending. That's all in the book. But more importantly, yes, it's now in evidence that it was his connection to Fillery, and we know he was connected to Maranchak. So, there's one channel of communication the night before was arrested. A mate of his in there.
5: So, as well as Fillory, wasn't Reese also tipped off?
4: Yeah, that's the completely new revelation. So, it appears there was a tip off to the mirror where Reese had friends via somebody in Cambridge. And apparently, Sylvia Jones, a mirror reporter who'll figure in this story, knew the night before that police officers were going to get arrested. And then there's evidence. From Peter Newby, the office manager, that Reese knew in advance he was going to get arrested and told Newby to warn his wife.
5: Well, the issue with being tipped off is that they could get rid of evidence and get their stories straight with each other.
4: Exactly. So, you know, if any advance for tip off from an arrest just gives the suspects a great head start.
5: So, the tip off via John Ross and the Mirror, did that make it into the papers?
4: No, not as far as I can see.
5: So it doesn't appear that they're trying to uncover a story?
4: No, it looks more like they're trying to cover up. In the next episode of The Daniel Morgan Murder, we'll look deeper at this early relationship between corrupt police and the press, particularly around that other sudden violent death in the summer of 1987, that of Alan Taffy Holmes.
5: Episode 2 was produced by Peter Dukes and Devi Amir. Music by Shemeli Amir. Additional music support by Daniel Pike and Incompetech. To buy your copy of Untold, The Daniel Morgan Murder Exposed, go to www.amazon.co.uk or buy in stores now. Untold, a Flameflower Duende production.